Now, odds are, if you're listening to this, because you are a human being, at some point in your life, you have experienced trauma. And trauma can be extremely challenging. And in this conversation today with Tiffany R. Warren, we talk about how we can experience good and bad trauma. Tiffany is the Executive Vice President and Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer for Sony Music Group, and we have a powerful conversation outside of talking about good and bad trauma. We also talk about, in these unique times, what it means to have a second first day and how over the course of her life, Tiffany has learned the most, believe it or not, when things don't work out. You're in for a treat with this episode, but before we get to it, I want to let you know that I have this free, this free amazing handout for you. It's called The Five Questions That Can Change Your Life. As a coach, as a speaker, as an author, I don't proclaim to have all the answers by no means. However, I do have some amazing questions that can lead to amazing results. So go to the show notes and you can get the link to get access to the five questions that can change your life. Okay, without further ado, let's get to the Best Thing Podcast with Tiffany R. Warren. Hey everyone, welcome to the Best Thing Podcast where I talk to people about the best thing to happen to them. That doesn't include the traditional markers of success. I'm your host, Antonio Neves. I'm the author of Stop Living on Autopilot, a speaker and success coach. Each week, I bring on a new guest who has a powerful story to tell that will motivate, inspire, and help you see life through a new lens. Now, this week's guest I've known for about 10 years, and I'm so glad I do. She may not know it, but she has played a pivotal role in my career Tiffany R. Warren is the Executive Vice President and Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer for Sony Music Group. She works to expand equity and inclusion activities and policies all across Sony Music Group's global recorded music, publishing, and corporate divisions. Prior to working with Sony Music Group, Tiffany served as the Senior Vice President, Chief Diversity Officer for Omnicom Group, where she oversaw a team focused on efforts for the advancement and retention of top performing talent inclusive of women, people of color, and LGBTQ professionals. With over 22 years experience championing diverse professionals in the creative industries, in 2005, she founded AdColor, which has launched the AdColor Conference, Awards, and Futures Program. Tiffany and AdColor has been widely recognized for the progress and direction the creative industries have taken around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Tiffany has been honored with numerous awards across various industries over the years. Let's be real, far too many to count. And I'm just so happy to have her join me today. Tiffany R. Warren, welcome to the Best Thing Podcast. Thank you, Antonio. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I just love reading. Love reading that, yeah, I just love reading that bio. It gets me hyped up seeing all the amazing <laughs> things. And I only mentioned just like just a few of the things. And I just want to just acknowledge you. I mentioned in the introduction that you played a pivotal role in my career. And I had to think back as I was preparing for this interview that as I was leaving television, you know, after nearly 15 years in New York City in 2012, as I, as I was transitioning, you were one of the first people that ever gave me the opportunity to, to moderate panels, to host major award shows before I became, you know, doing talks internationally, et cetera. Like you hired me, you brought me on. And I just want to just publicly just say out loud, 
thank you for giving me that opportunity. Like, I don't know if I'd be talking to you today if those things didn't happen. So I want to say thank you. Oh my gosh. Thank you. I mean, you're the classic. You had me at hello when I heard your voice and I heard your story and I saw not only your professionalism, but your passion for the subject and just what we were doing, because you really were part of our conference journey very early on when nobody really knew that we could actually pivot to doing a conference. You, I, I'm just, I'm honored that you said yes, because I was just so excited to ask you to be host. I felt like, oh my God, this is a big deal. And so it's just really beautiful to hear that feedback, but I would do it all over again. You're amazing. Yeah, well, well, thank you. We had so much fun. I hosted the Ad Club Awards back in, in 2012. And what I'm going to do for everyone in the show notes, listen, most of the shows, I don't really MC much these days, but most big award shows, they have these amazing openings that they do before the show begins. And we made the best show okay. open ever. That was very reminiscent to uh, the movie, The Hangover. I'm going to put that link yes. in the show notes. It was absolutely amazing. And at that award show, my mom still thanks me to this day because she got to sit at the same table as Boris Kojo. So let's go to this question right here. You know, people heard your bio, which is obviously ridiculously impressive, but I think this is fun for me. I want you to imagine, Tiffany, you're in line at your favorite coffee shop about to place an order or you're on a plane and you start talking to a person in line or that person seated next to you. And, you know, they end up asking you about your work, what you do for the uninitiated, uninitiated, uninformed. If you had to explain your work to a stranger, what would you say to that person about what you do? Super simple. You know, I've gotten it down to four words. I am a dream defender and I'm a hope dealer. And I maintain that to this day. I think I say dream defender because I I can pull a direct line from the work that I do today and every day directly to being a beneficiary of the programs that were put in place after the death of Martin Luther King. So I can trace my excitement, my passion for this work directly to being a beneficiary of diversity programs and initiatives very early on in my life, like two and a half, you know, getting placed in Head Start. So I usually say I'm a dream defender. And I'm a hope dealer. And then my team has christened me a heart director, which is on my sweater that I'm wearing. And a heart director because, you know, in advertising, there's the art director. And creativity is a driving force for diversity, equity, inclusion. I believe it is. Just because the situations are so complex. And we really haven't solved a lot of these issues in society. And yet we're often expected to do so within the walls of corporate America. So creativity, a bit of hope and and a lot of dream, a lot of dreaming is very much involved with what I do. Let's talk about dreaming for a quick second, only because in my book, I I talk a lot about dreams because I think in many ways, as we get older, unfortunately, people either they forget about their dreams or they or they give up on their dreams in some capacity. I think, you know, as we get older, we can get beat up a little bit by by life. But what I'm hearing you say is that even for yourself, but also for others, you stay steadfast and encouraging others. Uh, My hunch is growing up, as you just mentioned, some of the programs that there must have been people throughout your life growing up in Boston, that area, who encouraged you and were hope dealers and dream defenders for you as well. Is that fair to say? Totally fair. I've had dream defenders in my life since Head Start. You know, Father Hastings, who, you know, drove me to and from Head Start every day from where I lived in in Roxbury, Massachusetts. You know, Maria Dietria, who was my a pivotal fourth grade and fifth grade teacher who worked me hard so that I could apply to go to private school and then becoming a member of the Daniel Mar Boys and Girls Club in Dorchester, you know, being a teen or youth leader 
came in contact with some incredible hope dealers who encouraged me to apply to more than just my safety schools. And I ended up getting a full scholarship at Bentley University and subsequently am now a trustee. So all of these things are connected. But yes, I had real life hope dealers and dream defenders, particularly one in particular, which was a school nurse. And often students of color find those defenders not in traditional roles like the headmaster or their teacher. I've been lucky. But one of my biggest hope dealers and dream defenders was Jacqueline Arrington, the school nurse at the Windsor School. She wasn't just giving out prescriptions and telling us to go lay down if we had a headache, but she was also coming to us because she knew sort of the environment that we were in as pioneers, some of the pioneers of diversifying the Windsor School and knew that we needed a space to just be and take a break sometimes. And that's, you know, you can't write a prescription for that. So yeah, there was, there was a lot of people who poured into me. And so I feel honored to do the work I do because in a way it's paying homage to them. Yeah, a few things jump out to me about what you just said. One, just the word pioneers. Like we think pioneers, we're thinking about the Wild West and people going to going west to explore things, but we forget here we are, 2021, and people are still having to pioneer their way in different industries and something we just don't talk about. We make people make a lot of assumptions about playing fields, et cetera, but people are still pioneering things. And here we are in Western civilization. That's another conversation. But before we can't just skip over this, but you mentioned, I think I saw on Instagram or on LinkedIn recently, you mentioned being a student at Bentley, then now being a trustee. We can't skip over that because you had this great photo of you when you were graduating and then you as a trustee. I mean, how about that right there? Just just that transition. But on that note, you mentioned the nurse and some other people. I I hope you could just expand on this a little bit, because one thing I think we neglect to think about is the power of believing in someone else. The truth is I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for my sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Hirschman. When I was about to turn the proverbial wrong corner, she cast me as the lead in a play, which seems really simple, but that there's a reason why I'm doing the work I'm doing now, but that she got me to believe in myself and I didn't believe in myself. So I'm curious, even in the work that you do today, you pour into people, you invest into people. Can you talk about how important it is to, to believe and others and why they need that. I've had way too many examples. You know, I, I often think that people arrive and you have to meet them where they're at. I, I've had the great fortune of knowing how to meet people where they're at, but also see where they're going. And so what I try to do in between that gap I have of time of, of where they're at and where they're going is to invest as much as I can in them. And it's not necessarily invest in terms of dollars. There could be that aspect, you know, providing training or knowing that they'd be perfect for this new cohort that's happening on leadership, you know, extending myself to recommend, understanding how important it is to make it on lists, you know, these traditional corridors of power that often, and not purposefully, but it's just like, it's who you know sometimes. And that's, I think is dissipating, which is good, but, you know, making sure that people are seen. And I think when I, when I think about how I started Ad Color, how I started Ad Color, I think about the reason I did it is because the traditional quarters of power weren't necessarily looking at us, particularly professionals of color. And I didn't get mad. I didn't get upset. I just figured out a solution. And so that is one big example that a lot of people know about. But I think in general, just in my day-to-day interaction, it really is about coaching. It really is about looking at where people are at and then just 
meeting them there and certainly providing advice or support to get them to their next step. But I believe fully that people get there, you know, and they have it in them. But sometimes it takes someone to step outside themselves and say, this is where you're going. Um, And hopefully the feedback is received in a way that's mutually beneficial because I look for that kind of feedback as well. I'm not immune to it. I think often people get to certain levels and, and may unintentionally think they're immune to feedback. I, I am not. And, you know, I've, I've had that lesson time and time again, particularly within the last two years of there's always room for improvement and feedback. There's always room for improvement and feedback. And listen, you've been operating in the C-suite as well, where that's a whole other level of feedback and conversations that are happening that people aren't privy to. That's something. But you said something that jumped out to me. And I'm even, it's funny where we are on this day and age. I even think what I'm about to say may be a little bit controversial, but I I love that you said, I, I didn't get mad. I didn't get upset. I figured out a solution. And so correct me if I'm wrong, what I'm seeing a lot now are people getting mad and people getting upset, but I'm not always seeing the solution part. Or would you challenge me on that and say I'm wrong? It's not controversial. I do think that, you know, you think about where power sits and people often think, oh, you're powerful because, and there's a qualifier, you're in the C-suite, you've created this organization. My power actually comes from my ancestors, from my grandparents who did things way before me to set things in motion for me to be as confident as I am in my leadership abilities. You know, that kind of stuff, the C-suite, all the things that I've achieved, that is very nice dressing and I'm very appreciative of it. And I, I never would push it away, but it doesn't define me. And I think that's when people either get to know me or talk to me, they're really surprised because they're, they're you know, obviously that bio casts a really big shadow. But I always try to um, remain in this this present space of understanding that I am an example. If a butterfly has wings and there's a ripple effect, but I'm an example of the things that those that came before me put in place for me to have, you know, a 10-year tenure in C-suite, in the C-suite versus, you know, waiting until I'm in my 50s or 60s to obtain the C-suite. And, and that's okay too, but I got there faster because of what people did ahead of me. And so I want to put things in place from a solution standpoint to to make sure that people who come after me get to their destination faster. And that requires sometimes doing things that you may not even benefit from, but someone else that you don't even know may benefit. And having that confidence and that humility to understand that. And, and that takes sacrifice. And some people may or may not want to do that. You know, it's 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 a personal choice. It's a personal choice, but wow, I'm just thinking about, listen, I've been fortunate over the course of my career to work with and meet and interact with some some amazing professionals. I mean, folks like yourself that, that have titles like CEO, COO, you know, titles like yours, et cetera. And there are so few people that actually do things that don't benefit them. To hear you say that, that that, that awareness, oh, yeah. that, that humility, oh, yeah. lack of ego, if you will. I know we all have egos, so don't get me wrong. And it is so rare to hear, to see someone do something. Maybe I'm spending time with the wrong people who are who aren't <laughs> doing things that will benefit them. I do want to ask you about something you said earlier. And by the way, let me hit pause because when Tiffany talks about, you know, the, yeah, the title is sexy and all those things. When I first met you, I, frankly, I was intimidated based on, you know, the things you read on the internet, titles, all the different awards you have, et cetera. Then I met you and we were, I remember we had our first in-depth conversation. We had lunch, I believe one time with yep. Mark Sean. but then when we were in yep. Vegas, we got to spend some quality time together walking around, 
And I was like, oh, oh, this is a tip. Oh, I, everything just went over the video. I was like, she, she's just, this is just a real human being. I'm good. Like, let me just take a deep breath. I'm okay. I don't have to, I'm good. It was great. Okay. You said something earlier and I, I can't let this slip by because I think it's so important for people that are listening and, and frankly for myself. And that is, you said, yeah. I meet people where they're at. Tell yeah. me more about that. Yeah, I meet people where they're at and I see where they're trying to go. But let's start with the first part of that. What do you mean when you say I meet, I meet people where they're at? Listen, if I meet people where they're at, where the house is not even built or the house is built and the windows are dirty and muddy and you know they can't see out of the windows. They can't see their future. They can't even see their present sometimes. And this is the thing, like I want it, I want it to be clear. I don't have a huge, you know, I have really great moments where people rise to the occasion and, and there'll be a couple of moments that'll be made public soon about some of my mentees that are just going far beyond me, which makes me so happy. The key though really is sometimes it doesn't work out. I learn the most from when it doesn't work out. And for me, when it doesn't work out is when I'm doing team too much, <laughs> when I'm trying to be the mentor, the therapist, you know, all these things to this person. And, you know, I can't even be that to myself sometimes. And so sometimes it doesn't work out. And I've learned the most from when the situations where the mentor mentee relationship goes a little bit sour because you can't be all things to all people. And so if you're going to be a coach, you have to actually create space for sometimes things just don't work out. And so I think when I say where I, I meet them where they're at, that is a learned behavior because I used to really just go in. I want to fix all aspects. And that's humanly impossible. And it's really not my job. My job is to be prescriptive, to figure out from a career standpoint. And if I want to go the extra mile in terms of a personal standpoint, when I see the barriers that may be in their way personally, I may or may not do that. But there's times that I've done that that it hasn't worked out. And those are those moments are where I've, like I said, I've learned the most. Yes, they've been hurtful because, you know, I have to check my own ego. Like, why couldn't I make that work out? But I also gave myself grace. That's where I learned to give myself grace because, you know, you cannot be all things to all people. Because I think when you hear about mentoring stories and coaching stories in, in entertainment or in the public, when people want to do those feel good kind of stories, there's always these crescendos. There's always this very nice bow at the end. And that's not how it is in reality. There's ups and downs. There's sometimes when you don't speak to someone for a very long time, they'll come back around and say, hey, something you said to me is really stuck with me. I'm sorry I haven't kept in touch. So I make room for all of that. And I don't I don't put any pressure on myself anymore to maintain these award-winning, you know, mentor, mentee profile relationships. It's like, it is what it is. It is what it is, but you just now you now you just sound like an adult. <laughs> you just you like you're you're saying things a lot of people are listening to right now and they're like, dang, I've been petty. I've been really in my feelings. But the fact that you even just said create space for things when that for when things don't work out. I mean, that just that that allows me to exhale. Like we put all this pressure on everything to right to go perfect, but that just allows I think all of us to ex- exhale to create space for when things don't work out. And it's funny, as you were talking about the mentor and mentee relationship, I just had a flashback when I was moderating my first panel with you prior to hosting the show. Must have been 2010 or 2011. It was you, you were on the panel and someone else. And people were talking about how to get a mentor. And I'll never forget this. And I've used this. And I always give attribution to you. And you said, here's how do you get a mentor. You don't ask someone to do it. You start treating them like they're your mentor. 
And I was like, well, that just hit me in the face. If you, if you formalize it, will you be my mentor? No, I'm going to give you the stiff arm. Get out my face. However, when so, <laughs> however, <laughs> once you make it formal, it's just weird. However, when someone all yeah. of a sudden treats me like that and they email me and ask me a very specific question or they reach out and all of a sudden I'm like become their mentor and I don't even know it because they're adding value to my life and vice versa. That's something special. That That's a whole other conversation. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, just for people who are listening, I really don't stiff arm people and say, get out yeah, of the Yeah, stiff arm is real. That stiff arm is real. My stiff arm is usually when I say that's not in my area of expertise because people ask me to mentor them like, and we're not even in the same industry. Not that that's a prerequisite, but I just know my bandwidth. And I just, you know, just very calmly say that's not in my area of expertise. Do you have a particular question that I can answer for you? Oh, let and, me tell you, you know, something. That's a book title. That's not my area of expertise. <laughs> Next time I get an email, someone's going to say, are you available Thursday at four? I'm just going to say, that's not my area of expertise. <laughs> it's a little better than the stiff arm. That's, but Antonio, I asked you if you were available at four o'clock. <laughs> not my area of expertise. Leave me alone. Uh, I want to ask you. <laughs> Before we get to this question about the best things, a few more things I want to chat with you about. And obviously, you know, th this past year has been a fascinating one in the midst of the pandemic and so much that's going on in, in society. Specifically, I can speak here about the United States. And it didn't evade my attention and it didn't, my, my antennas went up because in 2020 and so far in 2021, Tiffany, I feel like I've seen more diversity, equity, and inclusion hires over the course of 12 months than I've seen over the course of the past 12 years. And so it's like all of a sudden people are saying, oh, this is important. This is important. But my brain always went to, but hold on a second. Tiffany's been doing this work for years. Have, mm -hmm. have people been just ignoring what's been going on, ignoring that work like you've been doing for so long has been happening? Or have decision makers at organizations now been been forced to make these decisions based on what's going on in society because I kind of got I, I got a little defensive and mad. I'm like y'all should have been doing this. And by the way, you don't. And I kind of got even mad because I'm like y'all giving yourself high fives and pats on the back for doing this, but this should have been done and it has been done. There have been examples of this, so I don't even know if I have a question, but I think you know what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I know. I, definitely. I, you know, I remember speaking very clearly with CNBC a little after, because they made the connection a little after George Floyd's murder, there was an uptick, certainly in organizations putting the call out for chief diversity officer. I think LinkedIn is a really great data point in the sense that, you know, you may have gotten one sort of uh, job opening a month. Now it's three or four a day. And Business Insider covered it in the sense of the, the nine biggest hires, and they pointed out who was new and then who was kind of the second generation um, or third generation in terms of CDOs. And certainly I made the list with Sony Music Group and proudly. But, you know, when I think about the uptick, there were some companies that were positioned for success. And I think about, you know, my former company in the sense that they knew pretty early on that it's not a one-stop shop with one CDO, that you need CDOs across the net. And so, in leaving there with 27 in place, and I know the number's grown since then, it's pretty proud to say that they were ahead of their time. But you think about you know, other organizations, and it's not necessarily being ahead of their time or not. It's in the course of business, you had individuals who were taking up the banner in supporting DE&I. And I think 
not only George Floyd, but the social justice movement of the time, including Black Lives Matter, brought activism to the doors of corporate America. Because I think in the past, it's been very much outside of the door. It hasn't really come inside. You saw it come more inside. And I think tech led the way with that. You know, I remember very specifically attending a Google town hall when Philando Castile, his murder. And I have never been in an open forum and ugly cried. I was just devastated. But it was a group cry. Everybody in that room felt the same way. But what it was what was really great is that they created a safe space for everyone to share their point of view, whether it was the affirmative or it was on the other side. People who had family members who were police officers, you got to hear all sides. That to me was a precursor of what we're doing now. It's table stakes now. But you think about some organizations were already kind of getting that feedback that this is now an important part of doing business. We can't leave activism at the, no longer at the door. And proudly with Sony Music Group, creating a very large social justice fund that is now in its third you know, round of funding and really putting that funding out in the world, you know, that's going to continue. But I will say when I went on CNBC, I was having a moment because I become the publisher's clearinghouse of like, <laughs> you know, CDOs who are not really happy <laughs> in their in their position. They're like, Tiff, and when you get on there, make sure you say blah, 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 blah. I was like, hey, got it. These are the three or four bullet points I'm going to cover. But one of the main ones that I wanted to get out there, and I will continue to say from any platform I'm given, is that a CDO in a company is nothing without the proper structure, the resources, the funding that is afforded to every other business unit within the company. It's really just performative. And I'm not saying that from a, you know, what are you talking about kind of position. I I know for sure because I've been poured into by other CDOs who are like, please get the word out. You know, it's just really important. So I'm using some of this time to say, if you are hiring this position, have that already in place. Don't have it after the fact or have it in a reactive way. Have that stuff in place as you're interviewing that potential candidate. Yeah. I mean, again, for folks who are listening, CDO, Chief Diversity Officer, I mean, the work that you've done has been amazing. And I mean, your willingness to, to always tell the truth and, and be really straight with folks. And I guess the best way to say it, not cut corners is for me, really, really refreshing all that you've done. I mean, even me attending the Ad Color Awards, the conversations that have that take place on those stages, that take place at the events, are conversations that I never hear anywhere else. And the, the key word you just said that I really, really love over the course of that was it's a safe place. We can all have different opinions. We can come to different conclusions, but we're here together working, as you mentioned earlier, to, to have some solutions, which are so important. I do I have to ask this question because before we get to this, this the question of the best thing, which who knows, maybe, <laughs> maybe we'll never get to, maybe I need to get rid of this concept of the best thing because no, I have these fun, okay. I have these fun conversations with people. And then I'm like, yeah. but I got to ask you this question. People love it. So you transition jobs. You work in the advertising industry for a long time. And then you found your way now to the, to the music industry, to Sony, from Omnicom to, to Sony, two juggernauts in their own right. Talk to me about just transitioning industries and what, what that was like for you. Because not only did you transition industries to a major role, you trans, you transitioned during the pandemic. Like that That's no joke. So where someone could be comfortable, where you have a great role, what gave you, and maybe this is the wrong word, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, the courage to, to, to make this, this move when you probably could have found many reasons to stay where you were? Well, first and foremost, I knew it was time. 
I think that, you know, you sometimes you overstay your welcome, you know, and I think people comfort does that, you know, it was, it was time and, and delivering that news was one of the hardest days because it was time, but I was leaving behind this incredible family, truly a family that came even, became even closer because of the pandemic. You know, I, I was just telling someone today that when the pandemic happened, I really thought DE and I was going to turn into DIE, which is die wow. because, because I wasn't able to get that energy from the community work that we do, gathering people, seeing people face to face understanding what's going on and the different companies. Like I really was scared for the discipline almost immediately. And, and actually what it has done is, is added more um, tools in my toolkit. You know, now I have this so much value that I've got gathered through virtual reality and bringing people and communities together through virtual reality that it actually has become even more integrated into the company than it ever could have been, which is really exciting. But I do think that pivoting in the pandemic, which is itself a hardcore reset, (laughs) and then pivoting to a new job, which is another reset. I had spoken to you a little bit earlier about good and bad trauma. (laughs) So pandemic, good trauma, bad trauma, clearly a lot of loss of life, a loss of a way of life, rejiggering how we interact with each other, because we have to, you know, the way we interact has fundamentally changed. And I don't know how, if we'll ever get back, you know, what took centuries to kind of put together and put in place. And so that's one thing. So good and bad trauma, for sure, getting a new job in a pandemic. But then, you know, my second part that I had to really wrestle with was what life is and what it actually, what life was and what it actually is. So what it was, was having a really strong you know, professional unit, having mastery of DE&I and advertising, marketing, mastery, speaking without even thinking. In this case, it's a good thing. You know, being at the top of my game and then flipping the script and being completely brand new, being a music lover, but not knowing the business of music, giving myself, and I use that word earlier, grace. So really understanding what life was, which I was in advertising and I'm still connected to it. And what life actually is, I'm in this whole new territory of rules and business and interaction, and it's exciting and thrilling. I'm really, I really wake up every day excited. And then there's the valley, which I've been in for a little bit. And the valley is where I'm learning lessons, good and bad. I'm learning new ways to interact. I'm learning how to be an observer and a listener in a real way and not necessarily lead the conversation like I'm so used to doing because of 24 years of mastery of one industry. And so if humility was, could be the word of 2020, it would be my word. It's taking a step all the way back and understanding that I'm not my job and the job is not me. And therefore I'm able to place my purpose and priority in different places because I did so in advertising and now I'm gonna do so in music. And then hopefully the breakthrough, which is the final step for me will be a new mastery of a new business that has cultural impact. Music is is what unites us. You know, you look at streaming and the way people have consumed music and art during the pandemic. It's it's been incredible to watch that people have a full understanding of the power of art and the power of music, more so than they ever have. And so for the industry that I'm now in to be so pivotal in such a really unique and once in a century moment has been really thrilling to be a part of. So 
I'm on that breakthrough part. <laughs> Still a little bit in the valley. I'm definitely, I understand what life is, saddened by what it was because I miss, you know, being part of a really uh, unique and, and wonderful industry. And then just processing that trauma of pivoting <laughs> during a pandemic. Um, yeah. You know. Something that jumps out to me from what you said is just that that willingness that most a lot of folks don't have is to be willing to observe as yeah. opposed to lead. And that is yeah. holy, yeah. just in itself, I think if people would just meditate on that, that willingness to observe as opposed to lead. I have to ask this question because you know I hit on a lot of this in my book, Stop Living on Autopilot. And I think there are a lot of people that's probably listening to what you said. Something specific you said, you said, you know, you overstayed your welcome. Or, you know, you have to ask yourself, have you overstayed your welcome? And a lot of people right now, I think this pandemic has given folks some awareness. They're, they, they, maybe they don't have that language yet, but they're starting to feel it. So some, just to be clear, people, sometimes you may not have the language yet, but there are signs you can feel if you have overstayed your welcome. Mm -hmm. uh, briefly, I'm curious for you, based on either personal experience or maybe even based on folks that you've worked with or worked for you, what are some of the signs you would say that potentially one has overstayed their walk and maybe it's time to pursue something new. Anything jump out to you? Yeah. I mean, I talked about this and I speak very generally, but you know, I honed it on one thing, you know, I was, I was constantly celebrated, but held up. And they're two very different things. Say that one more time. Say that up. one more time. You're like, Oh, Tiffany was held up, like held up. I'm doing a sign. I'm holding something up, but no, I think, it was more of that. And I really wanted to get down to like, you know, really just back to what I felt, you know, in the early part of my career. And it's hard to keep going back to that. I think that's why people love startups because you get to start up again and start over. There's a thing, but this is my third first job. And when I had my, when I had a job where I was the first to do something, it was exciting because blank slate, it's like, okay, I get to build. And then I had my second first job and I was like, oh wait, this is a thing. And now I'm on my third first job and first, you know, first to do it. And it's a thing. And so I think that's what holds me up. And I, and I, I will say if people are feeling like ready to pivot, it's important for them to understand they know, you know, I, I learned pretty early on the observation thing was in college, I eventually became the president of the black student union, but I was first the secretary. Then I was the vice president. Then I was like, I had other various jobs so that when I became president, and you hear this a lot, you have such a purview on all the different roles that you're able to lead from the front because you, you led from the back. Mm -hmm. And so that for me is such a key uh, part of my, my leadership toolkit is that people make assumptions, Tip, you, you need to be leading to the front, get up. But sometimes it's, it's okay to lead from the back and push others and support others to lead as well. You know, sometimes I go through a whole meeting without saying anything and it does unnerve people <laughs> because they're like, they're waiting for it. But, you know, sometimes there's a lot to say and sometimes there's nothing to say. But I do think that there's definitely signs that people know and it's personal to the person when they know it's time. And, wow. you know, Glenn Doyle said, Glenn, yeah, Glenn Doyle said in her book, Untamed, she had a, like a little story about Always, always make yourself happy first. I'm, I'm reframing it, but it was, it was such a good tidbit about she was talking to her kids and her kids were trying to decide something and do it by committee. Yeah. And she's like, sometimes doing the right thing, you're going to have to disappoint others, but never disappoint yourself. 
And that's sometimes what you have to think about when you make that pivot. You're going to disappoint others, a lot of people. But if you don't disappoint yourself, it's always the right thing. And that is for her to give that lesson to you know, her child that early. I can only imagine what they're going to be as a leader. But I wish I learned that earlier. Yeah. Glennon Doyle, I love her book, Untamed. And what you just said is something I think hopefully a lot of people clearly heard. And that is that it's okay to lead from the back. That's some advice that I wish I frankly would have got early on in my career. It would have been extremely helpful. It's okay to lead from the back. By the way, there are just so many gems in this conversation that hit me philosophically. It's hit me literally. <laughs> it's hit me existentially. I mean, I might not. I might have to not publish this and just write write a book on it and, and let you know you were co we're co authors because sure, I'm happy it, to. This is there are so many book titles that are coming to me. If I have a gift, I, I have a gift of identifying amazing book titles. Okay. Oh, oh, I have to ask this. I mean, this is I'm having fun. By the way, this, this is just fun for me. You mentioned your third first job and you said you're in your second first job. First, what an amazing framing just to to get let, allow yourself to to create, allow yourself to play, allow yourself to take some pressure off of yourself. But something else we're talking about that's pretty unique is that you started this job in the pandemic when most folks aren't going to the office every single day. And prior to us recording, you talked about how you're going to have your second first day. Oh. As well, because you're going to have to like, there's gonna, you're actually going to show up and everyone's going to be at the office. And so a reminder for all of us that whenever we choose in some regard, we can have our second first day. Okay. I'm really going to do it. I'm going to get to this question. The best thing I should, I should do. Actually, I realized for this podcast, I should have that be the theme of the podcast, but right when we get to it, say, sorry, everyone, we ran out of time, but never get to it. what's one of the best things that has happened to you that, that wouldn't necessarily appear on your resume or bio that has had a profound effect on, on who you are today? Yeah, I definitely don't put this on my resume. I wish I did under job titles, but becoming an aunt, you know, I have a precocious five-year-old niece that's very well loved on Instagram because she's just so shiny and bright and amazing. And I think what draws people to her is beyond anything, you know, she is who she is. She's taught me to be just really direct. Like she's very direct. And I think that we forget as we grow older and we become adults, we forget the directness, the tell it like it is nature that kids have because we we train it out of them. And we, and to some extent, we train it out of ourselves. And certainly there's social norms and things that you have to <laughs> keep in mind, but she's fundamentally changed who I am because I think, and we talked about this, Antonio, with the pandemic slowing us down, we used to talk about, I'm present, I'm going to be more present. And she gave me that gift in 2015. So actually what the pandemic did was allow me to explore that gift a lot more and not just be present for all of the constituencies that I have to be present for through ad color and also through my job, but be present for myself. Really tap into who I am, what I want, You know, not worry about disappointing anyone other than myself. And that's really a hard pivot because particularly when you're a CDO, it leaks over into your personal life where you know, and I've said this to my other CDO friends, it's like, where do we, it sounds like an R&B song, but where do we run to when, you know, we need space or we need support, you know, and we often turn and, and there's nobody there. And you can say philosophically your family, I mean, you can say other colleagues, but the, the type of energy we pour into our role and how we are for the community, being present is really a gift or being mindful. And so I got that through seeing her being come into this world and certainly, you know, as my little co-pilot, 
You talk about autopilot. I gained a co-pilot and I'm just really proud of her and, and I continue to learn from her. Yeah, it's amazing. And what I see, I, I love seeing what you share with her online on Instagram. <laughs> and what I see, what I see funny enough, as I see the videos and the things that she shares, yeah. I think she's a, a budding entrepreneur herself. Yes. You know what I see? I see a kid, even from a distance, I, I feel like I maybe probably maybe seen her in person before, but what I see from a distance is a kid that knows that they are loved. I can oh, tell. I can see in pictures. I can see in the videos that she knows yes, that she, she is loved. And let me tell you something. As you know, as a guy that's done way too much work, way too much therapy, way too much coaching. And there's, by the way, when I say way too much, I'm not no. against it. I'm all for it. If we yeah. knew, if, if we knew that early, earlier on, what a game changer it would be for ourselves. And I, I know she knows she's loved, and what an amazing gift. I hope we all can remind ourselves our, we are loved. And, and as you were talking, I was thinking about the whole notion of, as you're talking about you and your fellow CDOs, the whole notion of who encourages the encourager. Like even encouragers, we need encouragement as well. The last thing, last thing I want to bring into this is, as you were talking about family and something that I paid close attention to when I saw it, when I first met you. And as I think back to the conferences I saw you at over the years, one thing I've always loved, Tiffany, is that at your events, in a day and age where we seem to have this, this clear separation of church and state, of work and mm-hmm. family, how much have I loved that your mom has always been at your events <laughs> and always been by your side? It's like, and I know yeah. I love it because we're always so we so funny, mm-hmm. like as if as if the place where we go, we spend most of our time, like our family knows what we do. And so just briefly yeah. talk to me about how you celebrate, have celebrated Good. and shared all you've done with your mother. Like, I love that. Listen, I think, you know, particularly with the awards and different things that I've been involved in, these have been things that she looks forward to. She's so much a part of Ad Color Success. You know, when we go to team dinners, everyone goes up to her and they give her a hug and they want to sit and talk with her. And, you know, I think to some extent, culturally, we are very familial. We we build families. I always say that Ad Color is sometimes the cookout that we over invite everybody to. We certainly give people a heads up. Now, when you go to the cookout, this is the sort of things that you need to think about. But I also talked about the lobby. You know, the lobby at Ad Color is one of those places where you don't, you could be 27 feet away (laughs) and you could feel the energy in that lobby. Like me and Antonio are both smiling wide right now because people check in, they drop their bags and then they're in the lobby for like an hour. And there's not many places like that. And that flows from the fact that I'm very comfortable with having my family, my best friends from high school, my best friends in life. One day, you know, one year I brought, I think it was two years. I think Las Vegas was the year where I brought five of my eight brothers, you know, for them to have the experience because I know how much people who attend from a professional standpoint benefit. But I also love the fact that my family has been lifted by it as well. And I don't think that you should separate. I just don't because I think you can't, I can't really say that I'm the the president of a, a cultural movement if I keep my family over here. You know, my mom last year after 13 years got to do the intro for me. So I think people now know far more than they thought they would have about me because mom did the intro, yeah. but it was an emotional one because she did it a year after she came to Add Color, a month prior to having um, surgery for aneurysms. Wow. And so her being on that stage was much more than her just giving an intro, but it was a rallying cry 
of overcoming. And it was just, it was a special moment that I'll always have. So yeah, I, I never separate the two ever. Oh, I love it. Thank you. And this is the reason why for people who are listening, this is why I do the best thing podcast to have conversations like this. I love that the listeners and people listening right now, you get so much out of these conversations and you let me know, but I'm not even going to front with y'all. I do this for me first and foremost, because I get so much out of it. I would do this for just for free, just for fun to connect with amazing people like Tiffany, who again, who have poured into me, who have supported me. There are contracts I have today because of work I've done with Tiffany many years okay. ago that had to help, you know, take care of my family. So Tiffany, I can't thank you enough for, for doing this. We're going to have links in the show notes where you can learn all about Tiffany and see her amazing niece online and her mom as well. <laughs> so again, Tiffany, thank you for joining me on The Best Thing. Thank you. Hey, listen, for more information on me and The Best Thing podcast, just head over to my website at theantonionevs.com. There you can also sign up to read the first chapter of my best-selling book, Stop Living on Autopilot, or receive five questions that can change your life. You can receive both of those things absolutely for free. All I need is your email address. Okay, if you haven't followed the Best Thing podcast already, please make sure you do that now. And while you're at it, please go ahead and give us a five-star review. Believe it or not, it goes a long way to help spread the word. I want to thank you in advance for doing that and thank you again for listening. I will see you back here next week with another amazing episode. In the meantime, remember that the best is ahead. When you work and believe like the best is ahead, things begin to change for the better. Never forget, you have a say in this.